WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Since the Industrial Revolution, researchers are always looking for new ways to develop cleaner energy, such as biofuels. Today we're here to talk to the researcher Katie Ford about her studies on how to turn pollution into biofuels. Katie, can you please tell us about yourself and your research? Hi, I'm a third-year graduate student in the Microbiology and Molecular Genetics Department at Michigan State University, and I work with Dr. Michaela Taravist in the Biochemistry Department. The goal of our research is to engineer a microorganism, so a bacteria, that is capable of turning pollution into biofuels. Thanks for joining us today, Katie. It's been a while since we've had an episode on biofuels, and in fact, it was actually the second episode we ever did on the Sci-Files. Could you remind our audience what a biofuel is and how it pertains to your work? Yes, the idea behind biofuels is designing a fuel that can replace traditional combustion engine fuels. So what that basically means is right now we get a lot of our energy for things like cars from coal or gasoline, but those release a lot of As you can imagine, a lot of greenhouse gases, things like carbon dioxide, which contribute to climate change. And there's also a lot of issues with how we extract these fuels. So what a biofuel is, using an alternative source as the material to produce these biofuels. So a very popular example would be turning corn into ethanol. And one of the benefits to using biofuels is that they don't release as much greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide when we burn them. Another benefit is we can use them in our normal engines, just like we do for coal and gasoline. And additionally, it's a lot cleaner to produce them because like you can imagine, we're using corn instead of extracting these from the ground, which can create a lot of issues with water and pollution. Thanks for that explanation, Katie. Now you've mentioned this example of corn being turned into ethanol as a source for like a biofuel. And we've heard about other ways that plants can be used as fuels before, like Danny mentioned, but you mentioned that you're using bacteria to turn pollution into biofuels. How are you using a bacteria to produce biofuels? As you can imagine, it's a very complicated field. So really what a biofuel is, is a select group of fuels that release a minimal amount of byproducts like carbon dioxide when we burn them, in addition to coming from a biological source. So our bacteria produce biofuels by excreting things like ethanol during their natural growth processes. So what happens in our lab is we feed the bacteria carbon dioxide, and they will use that bacteria to build what we call biomass. So in the same way a human would eat food to grow, the bacteria eat carbon dioxide to grow. And in the same way humans excrete waste products, our bacteria excrete biofuels like ethanol as a waste product. And then we can capture that and use that for fuel. When I think of the structure of CO2 versus ethanol, they're different. Are you only providing the bacteria with CO2, or do you give the bacteria something else to power this reaction? We do give the bacteria something else to power this reaction, and what we give them is electricity. So another aspect of our lab, in addition to being a synthetic biology lab, we also work in electrosynthesis, which is the idea of using electricity to give energy to bacteria so they can carry out these types of reactions. 
This gives me some pretty major Frankenstein vibes, where you're pumping an electric current through this bacteria instead of a person. How do you keep the bacteria alive during this process, and why is it important to supply these bacteria with electricity? Interestingly, our bacteria are actually very happy using electricity for energy. So the organism we work with is called Shiwanella, and it has been very well studied, almost as well studied as E. coli, which is by far the most well-studied bacteria. And things we've learned about Shiwanella is that it has this chemical pathway which allows it to move electrons from inside of the cell to outside of the cell which very few bacteria do. There's only a handful that are known to do this type of process, which is called electron transport. So it has this chemical pathway that allows it to transport electrons across its cell wall or its cell membrane. And typically what this organism does is it will use this to move electrons outside of the cell onto something that's called an electron acceptor. So in the same way humans breathe oxygen, our bacteria use this pathway to breathe or respire on metal. So it can move electrons out of the cell and onto these sources of metal. Similarly, we can put these bacteria into what's called a bioelectrochemical system, or for a simple way to think about it, it's called a bioreactor. So in the same way, it will move electrons out of the cell onto a metal. It will move electrons out of the cell onto an electrode and then the electrode can take in those electrons. Another thing we know about this organism is that this pathway is reversible, so this chemical pathway can go both directions. While this organism typically will move electrons out of the cell, if we attach it to what's known as a cathode, the cathode will pump electrons into the cell, and then it will use these electrons in its metabolic processes just like a normal organism uses these electrons pumped into the cell for its energy purposes. Now you've laid down the groundwork for us. Does the bacteria use the electricity to generate the biomass? In a way. If you think about it, the cell needs two things to grow. It needs carbon to build biomass, and it needs energy in order to do that building. So the carbon dioxide is the source of carbon, and the electricity is the source of the energy, so it can actually build biomass. It's really strange because whenever I think of normal bacteria cells, they're usually intaking oxygen and producing CO2 and energy. Normally, the cells that use CO2 to make energy are typically plant-based. Is the Shiwanella bacteria a plant-based organism? And if not, how does it work with CO2? Shiwanella is actually not any kind of plant-based or algae-based bacteria. Shiwanella is what's known as a heterotroph. So all organisms on the planet get their carbon in one of two ways. One being they eat other things that have carbon in it, like humans do, or they do a process called carbon fixation, where they use CO2 like plants. So a lot of plants that use these carbon fixation pathways, the pathway that is very common and the most common pathway found on the planet Earth is the Calvin-Benson cycle which you may remember from high school biology class. But the Calvin-Benson cycle is a series of chemical reactions that happen inside a plant that allow it to turn carbon dioxide into sugars, which can turn into proteins and biomass. Our lab does a lot of what's called bioengineering. So my bacteria, I have provided with the genes that will build the proteins in order to carry out this carbon fixation cycle. 
by manipulating its chromosome, I can give it the ability to carry out this Calvin-Benson pathway. Once you've engineered your organism, does it work right away, or do you need to perform more manipulations to it? It definitely does not work right away. We need to do what's called an evolution experiment in order to get it working. So what that looks like is we have our engineered bacteria and we give it a little bit of organic carbon, so something like lactate, and then we give it a lot of CO2. And then what we do is we let this evolve and these conditions create what's called a selective pressure. So basically, under these very specific conditions, it would be more favorable for our organism to use CO2 instead of that little bit of organic carbon. So what this results in over time is our bacteria will acquire mutations in its genome that result in what we call fine-tuning mutations that slightly alter the genome, the metabolism, the regulation of the bacteria, so that way it is more favorable to use the Calvin cycle than its normal pathways, and then by the end we will have evolved an organism capable of fixing CO2 using the Calvin cycle. That's really cool that you're able to induce this evolution by weaning the bacteria from that common lactate source that it's used to consuming. Like you said, when the bacteria is consumed all of the lactate, it'll have no choice but to grow off of the surrounding CO2 that's flooding the system. From a fundamental standpoint, however, how do you know whether or not the mutation was actually inserted, besides not seeing the bacteria grow in that sugar-deficient environment? The idea is we give our bacteria a very specific amount of lactate that only allows for a very specific amount of growth. We will monitor the bacteria in the vessel over time, and they should be growing at a very specific rate with using only lactate. So we monitor it over time, and what we hope to see eventually is an increase in the cell population. Because we're not providing it with any additional lactate, we can infer that this increase in cell population, this increase in cell growth, is due to it using a different carbon source. And in this case, that is very likely to be CO2. Once we see this pattern arise, what we can do is take a sample from our bacteria culture, and we can do what's called whole genome sequencing, which is basically what it sounds like. We can sequence the entire genome and compare it to what the sequence was at the start of the experiment, and then we can look for any changes that have occurred between the start and the end and then we can figure out how those different mutations may have affected the metabolism in order to encourage carbon dioxide fixation to grow. Now, when you say that you're looking for an increase in cell population, I think of previous episodes where people are looking for proliferation or the growth of the cells. Normally, I know that people do this through staining techniques, and then they image it in a microscope. But I'm not sure if this would work with your particular experiment because what you're looking at is so small. What methods are you using to track the cell population? Are you using microscopy? We're actually using a very simple, very common method in biology called measuring the optical density. And we do that with what's known as a spectrophotometer. Basically what this machine does is you put a sample into the machine and it will shoot a beam of light through the sample and measure how much light comes out the other end. And so if you think about it, a low OD or a low optical density would be a culture with not a lot of bacteria in it, so a lot of light will get through, like, say, a clear piece of glass. 
but if you have a cell culture with a lot of bacteria in it, it'll be cloudy. So when you shoot a light at it, not as much light will get through, just like, say, a stained glass or a piece of opaque glass. So by measuring the amount of light that passes through the sample, we can know if there are a lot of bacteria or a little bit of bacteria. So it's actually a very qualitative measurement, but still gives us a really good idea of tracking changes over time. It makes sense that the density of the cell culture can affect how much light is able to transmit through that sample. However, how are you able to measure whether or not electricity is flowing through the cell? As you know, electrons are these extremely small particles that are responsible for the electric currents. Do you do direct current measurements on the bacteria? And if not, what kind of technology are you using to measure whether or not electricity is flowing? We actually do directly measure the current being produced by the bacteria. So if you remember I mentioned earlier those bioelectrochemical systems, or bioreactors for short, what a bioreactor is, is it has an anode and a cathode. And in short, what that means is electrons move through the system from the cathode to the anode. So we can measure the current of these bioreactors when there are no cells in them, and we know what that current looks like. And then when we add the cells, we can see an increase in current that is due to the contribution of the cells to either using electrons or giving electrons. Wow, it seems like you've made a lot of great progress on this project. What steps do you need to take in order to complete the project, and what happens after the project's completed? In order to complete this project, we need to get two main things done. One being we need to optimize the electricity aspect of this project, the electrosynthesis portion. And then the other half being we need to get our organism to fix CO2, fix carbon dioxide, as the sole source of carbon. The next step is to combine these and make sure the system is working exactly the way we think it is so that the only things we are giving our bacteria are carbon dioxide and electricity and that it can produce fuels from that. It can produce fuel as a byproduct. So if by the end of my PhD career I get my organism to do just that, the idea would be five, ten years down the road to scale up this system. So have these enormous vats full of bacteria that we pump in CO2 and we pump in electricity and they can produce fuels for us. That's good and all, but what makes biofuels so much more attractive of a renewable resource compared to others like wind, solar, or even nuclear energy production? What advantage do biofuels produced with this bacterium have over these other resources? So I'll start off by saying I won't even touch nuclear energy because there's a whole lot of issues associated with that, even though there are a lot of benefits. But a lot of traditional things like wind and solar energy are fantastic. I am all for using as much of those as we can. But unfortunately, the reality is there are some places where we just will not be able to use things like wind and solar energy. For example, jet fuel, there is no way to replace that with wind and solar energy. Additionally, there's a lot of issues with storing the energy that is produced by wind and solar. So one of the benefits to using this system is that we can use renewable energy to power the production of things like jet fuel so that we can make cleaner jet fuel. And additionally, this can act as a pseudo storage method for things like wind and solar. So one of the benefits of using this system is that the energy the electricity produced from wind and solar can be stored in the form of fuel, which can be used later. 
While it's quite clear that your work is very significant, it was shocking to hear that it uses electricity to create biomass using CO2. Thanks a lot for talking to us today, Katie. It was great to learn about your research. Thanks so much for having me on, and hopefully everyone has a little bit better understanding of bioengineering and biofuels. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.